On today's podcast, we have General Stanley McChrystal. General Stanley is a master strategist and visionary leader, the former commander of special forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a four-star general who led the war on terror, carrying out unprecedented success against multiple high-value targets, significantly disrupting terrorist networks around the globe. Stand by for some inspiration as we delve deep into this exceptional military mind. His development of counterinsurgency warfare transformed the way special forces work. I'm sure case studies on the strategies and techniques he cultivated will be taught at military academies and within the special forces communities across the world hundreds of years from now. General Stanley is also the founder of the McChrystal Group, a leadership consulting group that specializes in leadership, teamwork and strategic planning he's also the best-selling author of multiple great books including my share of the task team of teams new rules of engagement for a complex world leaders myth and reality and most recently risk a user's guide all of which i highly recommend in this episode we receive a masterclass in leadership we talk president obama and bouncing back from adversity i hope you enjoy General Stanley McChrystal, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. Yeah, well, thank, thanks so much for having me. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, look, I want to start with asking you, where was that first moment, the prospect of pursuing a career in the military jumped out at you? My father was a soldier and his father before him. And ultimately, my four brothers were soldiers and my sister married a soldier. At my earliest memory... I wanted to be a soldier because I wanted to be my father. And so I never really made a decision to be in the military. It was interesting as I went through school and I got to the age to go to, to college, I only applied to one college, West Point, because I wanted to be a soldier. It wasn't that I wanted to go to West Point. That seemed like the place to go as my father had to be a soldier. So it's funny, I never made a conscious decision to follow it. And I'm glad it worked out because it's possible I could have been carried along in that stream and ended up in the army and hated it. But it turned out that it was something I really loved. And what do you think the strengths were that enabled you to excel on the journey? Yeah, I think some of uh, my weaknesses will become apparent as well, too. Um, I was as smart as the average person, maybe a little smarter in some things, a little dumber in some things, but I had a baseline. Uh, ability. And I had a real interest in reading and in literature and in history. And so when I went to West Point, they focused on engineering and mathematics. I was very pained there, didn't do well in those subjects. But when I got in the military, what I found was the history, the foundation I had, my mother had been very interested as well. And in reading and communicating, those turned out to be strengths that turned out to be extraordinarily valuable to be able to understand context in many cases of the past, but also to be able to articulate or write what you wanted to communicate because much of leadership turns out it's communication. Absolutely. And I have to ask, did you ever have any doubts about joining the military? Yeah. Maybe one of my weaknesses there is I didn't go through that process. I just knew I wanted to be a soldier. Where my doubts came in is would I be a good soldier? Because when you looked at the stereotypical soldier who's 
brave, the leader who is charismatic and decisive and all of those things. I knew I wanted to be those things, but I didn't know if I was those things. And when you start your career, particularly in your first leadership experiences, you inevitably stumble. You make boneheaded mistakes or you interact with people differently than you know you should. And then you start to doubt, well, wait a minute, maybe I just don't have uh, some of the qualities that these people I admire. And of course, this is where the danger of how we depict some figures in history and then some today, we put them on pedestals and we see somebody and they're handsome and they're, they never seem to have any problems. All their kids go to great colleges. Their wife is gorgeous. They're, they've got a happy life. They're wealthy. They're, you know, everything they touch is good. And of course, that's not true. That's the, that's the image that people want to portray. And we feel, and, and what that can do, and in my case, is it, it made me doubt myself more because I wasn't that. And then when you get closer and you realize, hey, nobody's that. I, I totally agree. And I often refer to that as the movie version of success. And I think it's it's so dangerous. And you see it all too often where people overestimate others, put people on pedestals, and at the same time, minima, minimize themselves and their own potential to achieve. So it's something I think everyone has to be on the lookout for. Now, another question that I really wanted to ask before we sort of pivot is the military. It's a broad area. There's lots of roles you can perform um, within it. You have been with um, some incredibly prestigious units. And the question is, were there any that just gripped you where you had that thought or feeling that I absolutely have to be a part of that? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Before I went in, I it was the Vietnam era when I was in school and my father was in Vietnam and my oldest brother was there. And so as I watched that, I knew I wanted to be an infantry military, like my father. I wanted to be a ground soldier. I didn't want to be the tank or, or fly or anything like that. I wanted to lead people up close. And I thought I would want to leave in, lead in combat. Um, then I also became intrigued by some of the special operations soldiers. The movie, The Green Berets, came out when I was like 12 years old. And my, my father was actually, I think, in Vietnam when it came out. And I was intrigued by that. And so I said, not only do I want to be a ground soldier, I would like to be an elite soldier. I wasn't quite sure what elite meant at that point. Maybe just the idea of being special or better was intriguing to me. When I got into the service, what I found was I very much liked being an infantryman and I liked leading soldiers because although there's a lot of equipment involved, at the end of the day, you're leading people. And so I found that um, both physically challenging, which I liked, and then also emotionally rewarding because you're face to face with people and dealing. And then I also became interested in, in actually living out my uh, curiosity. I went into special forces first, the Green Berets, and they were at a period in their history that was not very good. Late 1970s, early 1980s, it was post-Vietnam and it was, I got there and it wasn't nearly as good as I'd hoped it would be. It wasn't at all the, the perception I had. And so it was the first time in my life where I ran into this gap between what I hoped to find and what I found. You know, I go to a unit and I think everybody's going to be 10 feet tall and I get there and they're not. 
and they're not nearly as disciplined or as professional as, as I want them to be. And so most of the rest of my career was spent in trying to get to places that met my hopes, my expectations. I wanted to get in units that were as elite as the mythology was, as good as the reputation was, because I felt that it would make me a better soldier. And in fact, that is largely what happened. No unit I ever went to was as good as I expected or hoped. But a couple of them later in my career, the Rangers for one, were vastly better than anything I'd been in to date. And so suddenly this is the first one that said, now wait a minute, this is real. This place is better and it's making me better. And then in, in subsequent uh, experiences, I was able to be a part of things that were closer to my hopes than uh, what I'd seen earlier. I think that is such an interesting point you make there. And it's something I certainly personally resonate with. And I'm sure many people listening will too. Now, in terms of the confidence to go for it, were there any experiences early on in your career that supercharged your belief in terms of, I've got what it takes to do this? Yeah, that's it. it's interesting you say that because when you join them, part of the reason you join them is to test yourself to see whether you've got it. I went to special forces. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division first. And while it was, it was a good unit, it was the 1970s. And in the 1970s, that division, despite its great history in World War II, was not very good. And so I was very disappointed in my first two years in the Army. But there was some talent there, but the organization was just not competent. My battalion commander was horrible. And so I went to special forces after that. And there, there was a glimmer of what I was looking for. There were some people there who were extraordinary soldiers. There was the potential. I led a 12-man aid attachment. Uh, and I was able to have a really good experience with them, a lot of, a lot of heart and effort. But the whole community of special forces was kind of weak. So you could see the potential. It was kind of like a diamond in a rough. Hey, this could be really good if it was what it was designed to be. And so, but in that period when I commanded the special forces team was the first time I started to believe, now, wait a minute. If this place was really good, I could be really good. I have the ability and I have the desire. I'm willing to work hard enough. I'm willing to do the things. And I can be as good as any soldier I, when I look like left and right. There's nobody here that I can't be as good as. So as I went on, then uh, I did a tour in Korea, but then I ended up uh, in a mechanized infantry unit that was just a basic unit. But the commander who came in and took command, when I, when I got there, the battalion commander had just been relieved. And so the unit was in complete disarray. And I show up as a new company commander in it. And so it was pretty grim until this new commander came in. It took about three months for him to, or three weeks for him to get there. And when he took over, he took over just a standard unit and he made it great. And it was funny because he was a funny kind of guy. He was a little bit chubby, which infantrymen aren't supposed to be. He smoked a lot. He liked to drink. Um, he was sarcastic, which are all leadership traits on the don't, you know, <laughs> column. But he was an extraordinary leader. He made the battalion better. He was 
organized, he was focused, he was demanding. And so he took this very basic battalion and made it really good. It wasn't elite by any means in the army's idea, but we were really good. And I, I walked away from that experience saying, now, wait a minute, part of being really good is not taking elite people and making them supermen. It's taking regular people and through a series of things, processes and culture and leadership, making that group of people far better than they could be. And that was a that was a real that was probably the turning point in my career because when I left that I was with him for four years. When I left that, I had a completely different level of confidence in myself as a leader, and a clarity on what leaders really do. You know, and so when I went, I left there and went to the Rangers, where you had a more elite group, and suddenly I thought I was armed with the attitude and the experience to to make the most of that. Yeah, and I guess that's where experience comes in, right? It plays its part. Now, obviously, you know, great leaders have that confidence, but they've also got that ability to translate that confidence to those they're leading. Were there any key methodologies within the units that you served in, in terms of achieving this? Um, there were some common things. Most leaders all did it a little different, but the things that jump out in their common is the first is you have to walk the walk. You have to be what it is you are claiming you want them to be. I had gotten to this, uh, the Ranger Battalion, the first, I finally got to the Rangers I'd wanted to join and I got in when I was a senior captain and they just relieved the battalion commander there. And they'd relieved him, not because he wasn't a competent soldier, because apparently he was extraordinary, but he had been caught doing fraud against the government and in an improper relationship with a uh, a female employee of the of the organization, so he had created this persona of being the extraordinary heroic leader, and then suddenly he'd gone down with a crash because the reality behind the screen was not what he sort of invited people to believe, and so there was a whole group of people in the battalion who were crushed, emotionally crushed because what they had believed in wasn't. Now, much of what he was, he was very competent, it was good, it was all good things, but suddenly it was as though their, their hero had suddenly been deflated and they weren't quite sure how to process that. And I arrived just as that was unfolding and I found that fascinating. So the first thing is you have to be what you want people to be. And a person later gave me the term that I found in really important said, people will forgive you for not being the leader you want to be, but they won't forgive you for not being the leader you claim to be. So you've got to set high standards and then they've got to be real. So that's sort of the first thing. The second thing is understand that the whole secret of leadership is getting people to perform better. They are not chess pieces that you move around for your greater aggrandizement. They are people that you motivate and you develop so that they have the capability to do more. And so if you focus on that, a couple of things happen. Um, one, the organization gets much better because it's not dependent on one genius moving the chess pieces, but also as they grow, it becomes more and more rewarding to be a leader. 
But it takes a little while. It took me a little while as a leader to get to that point because initially I was focused on me being a great leader, mm-hmm. which was me. <laughs> and then I learned that me being a great leader is really them. You know, I couldn't stand in the mirror and say whether I'm a great leader. I have to hold a mirror up to the unit and decide whether they are a good organization through my efforts. And I probably was about 10 years in service. I could have said those words before that, but I don't think they completely sank in till I about 10 years of service. I'm 20 or 32 or 33, and I'm suddenly transitioning from a hard-driving, ambitious, competent young officer to suddenly being what I'd call a leader who develops people. And that was a, a pretty big shift. I bet. And, and I'm, I'm sure an important one. And in terms of that transition, was there anybody who stands out as, I guess, what I would describe as a cultural architect or someone who just led by example in terms of the embodiment of those standards and behaviors um, in your transition in that time? Yeah, it's interesting. I had several. The one battalion commander, a guy named Tom Graney, I mentioned before, and he'd helped me make me a professional. I think when he finished with me, I was a professional soldier. In my next uh, phase as a young ranger, I started not to be young ranger officer, a major in the battalion named John Vines. He was the battalion executive officer, but he was the glue that held this organization together. And he was an Alabama uh, guy who had played football for Bear Bryant many years before. And He led people in a way that was um, interesting. He could poke you and push you hard, but at the same time, you were always convinced that he was trying to look out for your welfare. He's one of those few leaders through my whole career that would just call you out of the blue later when you're not working for him to see how you're doing, to provide you advice or, or to give help. He became mentor, and that's a popular word, but he was a mentor in the real uh, sense of the word. So I learned from him. And then a little bit later in my career, I had a sergeant major who worked technically for me, but really with me. We were command, I was commander, and he was sergeant major of a regiment together. And I learned as much from him. He, he did as much shaping of me as a leader as, as anyone else in my career. And he did it by reinforcing those things I was doing well and calling out those things that I wasn't. And not in a confrontational way, but I remember one time I I made a decision after working this issue for about six months. And I made this decision and it was the right decision. And I sort of went to him and I said, Mike, I've made the decision X. And I was looking for him to pat me on the back and said, well, you have done a great job, Commander. And he said, you could have made that decision six months ago. You had all this information six months ago, and it would have been better six months ago. It kind of crushed me. Yeah. But it was really effective. Absolutely. And in terms of aspiring leaders who want to shift the baseline in their organization, and maybe personally, where do you think most are just getting it wrong? Yeah, it's a great question. We say a lot about uh, making it about the organization or about the team and not about the individual. But in many ways, we reward the individual. We reward individual performance. We, we focus a lot on things like appearance and, and your ability to 
project. The U.S. Army instituted a new program recently where they are selecting people for command at battalion and brigade or regimental level uh, through a new process, part of which is a blind uh, interview, meaning the candidate sits behind a screen while this group of people interviews them on the other side. And what they are finding is through that and some other things they put in, they are selecting very different people. Because what they found is this ability to, you know, look like a military leader looks, straight teeth, good posture, earnest style, doesn't mean you're a good leader. It means you're good at that. And I find that in the civilian world and corporations and all. And, and sometimes we get blinded by that patina or facade people can put on. So I think the military, if they could look more at what's your effect on the organization that works for you or you work for, um, and more about, and, and less about what the end of, how the individual projects would be the biggest change I'd make. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I hope people listening are internalizing that. Um, in terms of leaders you've worked with, who's the most unconventional leader you've had the privilege to work with? And what did that look like in your performance environment? Yeah, um, I've had the opportunity to work for an awful lot. Uh, mostly, you know, military, but a guy named John Abizade was my brigade commander when I was a battalion commander. He later became a four-star. But he did some interesting things when I worked for him, because I worked for him several times, once as a battalion commander, and then once when I was commanding our counter-terrorist forces. He wouldn't take your problem. And, and I found that when he was the director of the Joint Staff, meaning he wouldn't put it on his own back. I see people go into him and they'd say, sir, we have this issue. And he would sit and he'd listen and he'd go, yeah, that's a naughty issue. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> and basically the guy was in there trying to get him to go, here's what you should do. Or, yeah, I got this. And what he'd go is he goes, I'm, I'm not going to decide that for you. I'm not going to do that for you. It's your job. Do that and then come tell me what you did. And I found that really, at first it was kind of surprising, but it was very effective. And sometimes, you know, you'd be struggling with something and he'd say, do you need me to tell you how to do that? And of course that hurts your ego. And so he'd say, no, I got it. But, but I found him a kind of classic compared to the normal military style. And I found it effective. And so no pressure now, but in terms of a recipe for success in this, uh, based on your experience in the military and your experience in the corporate space, what does that look like? I'm going to give you what I th think it is, and then I'm going to tell you what I think it should be. Um, the first is, if you want to make a fair amount of money, if you want to re re reach a certain level of success, and if you go into most areas, if you are a classic organization person, if you dress right, talk right, go to the right things, if you reduce the personal risk to yourself by not making decisions that are outside of existing doctrine or outside of what's done before, um, then your probability of success is pretty high. Mm -hmm. It's not guaranteed, but it's pretty high because the average people who go up 
unless they hit up an unexpected bump or something, as long as they've got a reasonable level of talent and they stay in the pack, mm -hmm. then they will be successful. And that's the cynical reality. And that's true in the military as it's true uh, in the civilian world. I, I use this example sometimes in the early 1980s the United States Army created a training center out in the desert near Las Vegas because the land was cheap and they could bring armored units out there and do the most realistic training we'd ever done. And they created a permanent opposing force called the Op4 and they used cutting edge technology to, to be able to, to do force on force fights more realistically than ever before. You could do a fight and you could see who won. And so when units started going out there in 1982, initially they would get beaten by the Op4 because the Op4 was better in that environment and they trained harder. And so these units would go out, they'd get humiliated. And they would be excoriated in what they called an after-action review, the, the evaluation of the battle afterward, and it was embarrassing. Then people learned that if you followed doctrine appropriately, if you sort of followed the checklist of doctrine appropriately, even if your unit lost the battle, when you went into the evaluation, you really weren't beat up very badly because people said, well, you know, you did everything right. The fact that you lost, you know, the Op4 is really good out here. So that's, it kind of doesn't matter. And so we created a generation of leaders, largely my peers, many of them, who believe that if you follow doctrine and you do things the right way, that you're okay no matter how it comes out. And I, I really came to this conclusion later in Iraq, that's the opposite of what we should have done. We should have taken people out there and says, the only thing you have to do out here is win. Now, you can't cheat. But if you stay within the rules, we don't care about doctrine, whatever. We care about winning. Figure it out. And because at the end of the day, that's what a corporate leader, that's what a sports leader, that's what a military leader, that's the real measure. It's not whether you say the right things, do things as people have done, it's whether you win or lose. And if people can go at problems that unconstrained, you know, and, and I found I was able in the counter-terrorist force, you have some very mature forces. I used to be able to look at them and say, you can't be illegal or immoral. There are no other limitations, figure it out. Then suddenly you get a much more uh, flexible mindset, a much higher expectation because Many times when we give people limitations, like we give them prescriptions on things they must do or proscriptions on things they can't do, we've given them a list of excuses for not achieving the outcome. And they say, well, you know, I could have done that, but take away the but. Say, so you either do it or you don't do it. Um, and now that sounds, you know, easier than it is actually to implement. But I think it's that mindset that often separates really effective leaders from other leaders. Because there's a lot of leaders, I call them caretaker leaders. You put them in an organization, and as long as the weather's good and things are going in a certain direction, they'll be fine. They can kind of run things the way it's always been run, and it'll, it'll be all right. But if they face a crisis or if an opportunity arises, they're not the people to take you in a 90 degree turn in another direction. They just don't have it in them. 
Yeah, I mean, that's something that really resonates with me, from what I've studied, but also what I've seen in my professional work. And I'm sure people listening will have been exposed to that style of leadership and felt the pains of being so. Um, I, I guess it, it, how I would describe that is almost one-dimensional training in a way where we we try and churn out this cookie-cutter model of leaders. You know, it's a step-by-step um, painting-by-numbers version and it just doesn't cut it at the top in the situations you've just described. And I think instead, those of you listening that really want to excel in terms of your ability to lead, you really need to spend the time and effort in investing into three-dimensional training where you're forcing your leaders to perceive, solve problems, um, and make decisions that are complex, but then also expose them to the opportunity where they can execute off those decisions and off their perceiving. And that's what I sort of refer to as three-dimensional training. I mean, I just don't see how anyone can really perform at their absolute peak without getting that right. It's something for me, you absolutely must have. You do. And and that means you've got to take risk. And the other thing is you got to work hard. You know, people you know, I'm not going to be very popular with this. People talk a lot about work-life balance and that and that sort of thing. I will tell you the people that change the world, the people that change an industry, the people that win major titles on sports teams, they work really hard. You're not going to find people who do those kinds of things who aren't obsessed with the importance of that. Doesn't mean they don't have a healthy family life or things, but you don't do that nine to five four or five days a week. It has got to be much because your competition, the the best people are doing that. Yeah, I mean, that certainly marries up with my observations uh, with the organizations that I've I've been exposed to over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, I think that is the standard in elite performance. What I'd like to do now is pivot the conversation back towards yourself as uh, an outlier performer and specifically to a peak performance. So a moment in time where you have been absolutely firing all cylinders, totally accessed all your technical ability and delivered on demand, under pressure. Um, is there a moment that stands out for you in respect to that? Yeah, it's hard to evaluate yourself. I'll, I give a description times when I was most pleased with the outcome. Um, I was able to command two infantry battalions, a a parachute infantry battalion in the 82nd Airborne Division. And then I was able to flip over and command a Ranger battalion, which has got more resources, slightly more elite and those sort of things. By the time I commanded that second battalion, my confidence as a battalion commander was really high. I thought I understood what it meant to lead troopers and Rangers and I understood the mechanics of what battalions do and how to do it. So my competence was pretty good. My confidence was very high. And in the second command, it had gotten to the point where I didn't just want to, to drive between the lines of the road because I thought we were better than that. And frankly, I thought I was better than that. And so I wanted to, to go off the road and I wanted to see where this thing could go. And so I was leading some extraordinary rangers in fact, from that single battalion, I think it produced something like five, five-star gen- or four-star generals, which is statistically impossible for a single battalion, but it did. Wow. So I had extraordinary talent I was working alongside. And we went to a training exercise in one of these training centers, this one down in uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. 
and they, they set the fight up in a certain way where they wanted you to prosecute counterinsurgency operations against this enemy. And this enemy had went against rotational battalions and they'd gotten very good at how they do it. And there was a way to do it. There was a doctrinal way to do it. And I looked at this thing and I said, well, if we do the doctrinal thing, we'll learn that it's really hard because the op force kind of figured this out. And I said, I don't want to learn that. Screw that. I know that answer. So we're going to throw that out and we're going to kill all the bad guys. And the, the evaluators freaked out because instead of giving the normal kind of instructions at the beginning uh, where we're going to get this decisive piece of terrain or whatever, I said, in the first 24 hours, we're going to kill something like 25% of the enemy. And in 48 hours, we're going to kill them all. So this is only about killing the enemy. So everybody, we're going to break into squads, which is a small uh, nine-man element. And we're going to infiltrate non-standard by squads. And everybody just go kill as many people as you can. And of course, the evaluators were... They were upset. They were disgusted. I had people pull me aside and say, you know, that's BS. That's not the way war is. I said, no, wait a minute. That may not be the way other wars are. That is the way this war is set up. You have created this situation for me to win here. That's what I have to do. So I'm doing it. And we went out and we did it. And it just irritated the life out of them because we had sort of colored outside the lines, whatever you want to say. And they said, that's not the right kind of guidance. But then the, this retired four-star who was there evaluating us said, no, he says, I'll have to admit, I was really bothered when these guys came out with that plan. But, you know, in this situation, you know, <laughs> they were right. And I have to ask, what was the effect on the lads you were leading at the time there? Because I can imagine that was a hell of a refreshing experience for them there. Um, I bet they loved it. Yeah, they loved that because basically we, you know, flipped off the the place. We'd said, I know what you want to do. You want to teach us these painful lessons. Screw you. We're not going to learn those. We're going to teach you one. <laughs> and so, yeah, we probably left there a little more arrogant than we should have been. But it was really good. I mean, we when I get together with veterans from that battalion, we still have that memory, you know, where somebody... It's like kind of like going to Las Vegas and changing the rule, changing the <laughs> odds by changing the rules. Yeah. And then winning and saying, share, eat that. Brilliant. Um, so it was it was good for morale. Yeah, I bet it was. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions, and thought-provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now, let's get back to business. I want to switch the tone ever so slightly. On the other side of the peak experience is the trough. You know, everything's going well. Then all of a sudden, there's this sort of like whack, and we get that metaphorical kick in the pants. Is there anything that stands out for you 
in this area? Yeah, and I'm going to probably trump anybody else. I, I'm going to talk about when I got removed from command in Afghanistan, because most people don't go through an experience quite that cataclysmic as I did. I've been in the Army 34 years. I was in command in Afghanistan for a year. We were prosecuting a strategy, and it was really hard. But I thought we were doing as, as well as we could. I won't, won't say I was overconfident because at that point I wasn't. I knew the, the mission was hard. There was also a lot of friction with the political leadership back in the United States. So I knew that there was a, an uneasy relationship. And, but I said, okay, I've got to ignore that. We're going to prosecute the mission as given us and do the best we can. And I thought we were doing under the circumstances as well as we could. Nothing perfect, but as well as we could. And then an article came out in the Rolling Stone magazine from a freelance reporter who'd engaged with my command team. And he painted this um, picture of a command team that was dismissive of senior leaders in our government, had sort of a locker room style to them and all. And I got called back to Washington. The president asked me what happened. And I basically said, I don't know. I don't, I don't think this story is really accurate or fair, but I don't know it, but I'm responsible. I told the president, I'm responsible. I own it. So here's my resignation, offered my resignation to the president, and he accepted it. So in a moment, I go from being a four-star general in command of the major fight that our nation's under, um, being um, kind of whatever somebody in, in my career typically wants to be. And in an instant, I'm none of those. I'm not a commander. I'm not a hero. I'm not even a soldier. When I walk out of that Oval Office, in an instant, everything that is me, my identity, is gone. And I'm on the news every 30 seconds on the ticker of the news, you know, for as long as the news cycle lasts, you know, 48, 72 hours, and they forget. But my career and life as I knew it is over. I'd gone into uniform at age 17, and I was now age 55, and suddenly I'm out of uniform, and I'm out in a, you know, a shocking, cataclysmic way. I always thought, you know, I might get killed or I might get fired for incompetence. I never thought I'd be accused of the things that that, that article and then subsequent people on the news, you know, connected that to. So my very confidence was shook, you know, as much as I think person's confidence and belief in myself and view of the future, it could be. Um, I was really lucky at that point. I mean, not the moment it happened, but in everything after. My wife was extraordinary. I've told this story to people. I got home. I, you know, I had flown back to the United States to offer my resignation, which I did. I, I then go to the house where she's living and I say, okay, we're done. It's over. And she said, good. We've always <laughs> been happy and we'll always be happy. And I was stunned. That's and incredible. she's been that way every day. It's been 12 and a half years now. And she's been that way ever since. And then everything else in my life after that, once you make the decision that not to try to relitigate it, not to cry over it. I mean, you're going to mourn over it. And I did for a long time and I still do. I still regret it. I hate that it happened. But I can't change that it happened. 
So what I do is I don't try to deny it. What I do now is I try to just have as great a today and as great a tomorrow as I can. And that's turned out to be the best thing I could have done. I didn't plan that. I just started doing it and then it worked and I've done it more and more. Now, I always tell people, you don't control anything in the past, but you do control a future. So don't try to live in the past. Focus 100% on the future. And that has turned out to be great. And I would tell people in business, people in everything, whether it's a, a small personal thing or whether it's a big personal thing, maybe a divorce or something like that, or it's a career failure, or you screw it up. I mean, it, it can be something you completely irresponsible for. You still control the future. You may have been an absolute dirtbag that day, and you may have done something horrific. That doesn't mean you have to do that tomorrow. That's really important advice. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. What were the biggest takeaways for you from that experience? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Yeah, you can't deny it happened, so that you have to pay attention to it and try to learn from it. I think thing, the things I learned, what I didn't do is we had some failures, which allowed that reporter to, to look at that. My, my public affairs team didn't vet the guy well, you know, some things. But I didn't go do a deep postmortem to try to find out who had screwed this up because there wasn't a point. It was for me to try to go find the guilty bastards. That would be trying to convince people that I wasn't responsible. But I was. I was in command. You are responsible for those things you're responsible for. It starts with your performance, but it goes to those people that work with and for you. And so I think that um, admitting that if they win the Super Bowl or if they win the World Cup, you're going to get a lot of credit for what they do on the field. If they have a problem, you also deserve credit, you know, accountability for that. So, so that's one of the big ones. Um, I think another thing is that people, you know, you think that everybody judges you forever. You know, you think that there's no such thing as redemption. The first is, I thought that every time I met people for the next two or three years after that, that all they were thinking about was the Rolling Stone article in the end of my career. <laughs> the reality is most people would go, they'd look at you and they'd, they'd understand the face and they knew the name, they couldn't remember even what had happened. The world moves on. You know, the, the dog barks and the caravan moves on. You, you have to be pretty self-centric to think that people spend a lot of time worrying about your problems. They don't. Yeah. And so that's actually a good thing. Once you realize that the world doesn't turn around you, then you're a little bit let off the hook because you can live your life and do better going forward because people will largely judge you on what you do uh, in the more recent past. Um, were there any other key steps in terms of emerging from, I guess, what was effectively a crisis stronger than you went into it? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, aspect of it. There were a series of events. Um, the, the initial thing happened in June and my wife did that, that moments or, you know, 30 minutes after it happened. So she was sort of step one. And then there was a question of a retirement ceremony. And I didn't want to have one. It was going to be about five weeks after the incident as I was doing the out processing. And I didn't want to have one because I was embarrassed. I didn't want you know people to come around. 
But one of the guys working for me, who's a four-star now, he goes, hey, you need to do it. And I said, and I was being petulant. I said, I don't want to do it. He says, it's not for you. It's for the people who want to come because they believed in you and they want to show that. So quit being self-centric and do it. So we had this ceremony and we had it at night, seven o'clock at night. It was still light in the summer. And we did it on a parade field right across the street from the military quarters where I lived at Fort Monroe or Fort McNair, Virginia. And it turned out to be a magic evening. I thought it was going to be just painful or sort of the last painful moment of this career. But instead, we had this extraordinary turnout of people who just wanted to communicate that they still believed and they cared. Um, we were we did the ceremony and whatnot. And then we were my wife and I, Annie, were on the field for about two more hours as people just stood in this line to come through and wish us the best. You forget how many people care about you if you don't have the opportunity to see that. And so suddenly what we realized is there was this whole net of people who sort of were all together to catch us. And at the end of that moment or that event, we that night, it was, it was bittersweet because we were, that was sort of the last military event of a career. But we suddenly realized that it's gonna be okay. We have built up these relationships for a lifetime. And now when we needed them, they were there. And so I think that was a really important step. And then, of course, I, I decided with a friend to start a business and do something completely different for the military, sort of to prove to myself I could. And, and I think that's important, too. I, you know, if you're a retired military person, you can make that a career. You can be a bitter old general or a bitter old colonel or sergeant major, and you just, you know, that's what you are for the rest of your life. And I decided not to be bitter, and I decided to be something else. So that gives you new stuff you're learning, new stuff you're doing, new people, friendships you're making. And so I would urge people, and I was 56. I turned 56 before we started the business that later that summer. And yeah, it's pretty late to start a business. But it's 12 and a half years old now. I've got 100 people. It's this tremendous thing I'm proud of. And it's a whole chapter in my life that I would never have had if I hadn't been sort of pushed out the door as I was in the military. So, you know, there's an upside to everything. Okay. I wanted to ask you about burnout. And I wondered if there were any experiences you've had or advice you might have for perhaps people listening that might be experiencing symptoms of burnout or maybe even leading teams where it's potentially an issue? Yeah, I think um, I think it's real. But I first want to say, you know, a lot of people claim burnout and claim things and they're tired and I go, okay, okay I got great sympathy for you. But, you know, the highest morale in most organizations is when they're working hard because they feel like they're doing stuff. If you want a military unit to go to pieces, don't give it enough to do. And it will absolutely fall to pieces. So I say that because when people say the solution for everything is to slow down and give people time off, let the troops rest, I'm not convinced that's true. Now, what you do need is several things. First off, you need clear purpose. Nobody hates doing anything worse than things that seem just 
pointless. You, uh, you know, you're doing things that you know aren't going to make a difference. You're working hard at it. You're spending hours. You're, you're uh, that sort of thing, and you think there's no value in it at all. And so organizations and individuals, I think, respond really negative to that. So just keeping people busy with busy work is not enough. It's got to have purpose and focus, and they've got to feel like they're getting somewhere. Um, so, and, and I think a disciplined operating rhythm is very important, a routine. For me personally, it's very important. I have a very almost set routine where I get up very early in the morning. I work out hard because that works for me. I tend to go to bed earlier, but I have a, a sort of a set rhythm I live by. And if I'm able to stay within that, I can keep that up. It's like running a marathon because I've got a good pace going. If I have to sprint a lot, then I get winded. And so when I get out of my rhythm, it just makes it harder. The the deeper burnout, though, is when I think people start to lose a belief in what they're doing, um, the importance of what they're doing or the value of what they're doing. In the counter-terrorist fight, which went on so long, there were guys who were doing raids every night. And these raids could be violent and they're killing people and whatnot. And I had a congressional delegation visit one time that asked me the question, your guys have been at this for years. How long can they keep it up? And my response to them was, until they think you're not serious, until they think that this, we're not going to prosecute operations as you described. Um, if they think they're doing something that, that has no end or no uh, conviction by the government, they won't be able to continue. They exist because they believe that you're serious. It's sort of the, the old story of the spear. They're the tip of the spear, but the power of a spear comes in the shaft. It comes in the weight and the heft that the shaft gives it when it's thrown or, or pushed. And so all of that's extraordinary. Family's part of that. The support of a nation is part of that. Um, sometimes a person's faith is part of that. There's no, It's not exactly the same for every individual or organization but it's very, very real. And so the best way to prevent the dangerous parts of burnout is to make sure that purpose is clear, that support is constant, and it's overtly provided, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, expressed. Yeah, I think that's fa fantastic advice. And just to pivot slightly, I wanted to talk to you about recovery. Of course, it's the other side of competing and training. And I wondered if there's any specific habits or routines that you follow. I've heard some rumors, um, but that help you really flick that off switch and reap the benefits it brings. Yeah, you know, everybody's got some, or a fortune, if they're fortunate, they found out themselves. I am very introverted. And I've got that from psych tests and I've got that from my, my own knowledge. When I am around people, they are taking energy out of me. So if you want to exhaust me, make me go to a cocktail party. Just after 40 minutes, I'm exhausted and disgusted and I just want to leave. And it's not that I hate the people, it's just that kind of engagement is very hard for me. And often at a work day, you're, you're going through a whole bunch of engagements with people doing things, whether you're leading or, or whatnot. At the end of that kind of day, I am drained. 
So what I found I have to do is be a little into myself. Um, I start in the morning when I work out and I work out alone. I don't work out with anybody. I don't want to chatter with anybody. I want to work out. And that's sort of alone time. And then in the evening, I like to sit and read. And it's funny because my wife is very much like me in the introversion part. Although you wouldn't guess it from engaging with her, but she gets exhausted. So we sit in these two chairs in the living room and we don't talk. We may talk every 15 minutes when suddenly I'll read something interesting and I'll say, hey, Annie, can I bother you just for a second? We'll talk for 30 seconds. And then we'll kind of nod and go, yep, we need that period. And if we don't get it, we're just, it's not a good night. <laughs> you know, and so everybody's got certain things. Those are the things that, that I found. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, before we wrap things up, I want to throw you a few quick fire questions, if that's okay. Um, first up is a coffee, beer with any historical figure. Who would that be for you? Yeah, I don't think he'd, he'd grab a beer, which I'd want to have. It's Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Because I've spent a lot of the last three years studying the man. And his what he faced was so extraordinary, but he navigated it with such patience and a deft hand. I would just love to sit and have a beer with him. You know, I'd also say Marilyn Monroe or something. My serious side is, is Abraham Lincoln. Good choice. Next question. Is there an insult you've ever had that you're secretly kind of proud of? Yeah, usually when they say that you're driven or something like that, that I'm intense and I, I push too hard. And I usually apologize. Yeah, yeah. But inside I'm thinking, hell yeah. And what would your advice be to your 30-year-old self? Yeah. Um, and that was to listen more to the people that you work with. You know, you, you want to build your credibility by giving them great guidance. But it took me a long time in my career to say, shut up and listen. Because two things happen. First, you get great guidance. And two, you change the relationship. The relationship is one of respect because you're showing them you respect them because you value what they tell you. And it took me a while. I got there, but it but it took me longer than I wish it had. And finally, if there was one message you could cement into the minds of people listening to this, what would that message be? I, I think responsibility. I think we're in an age where people don't want to be responsible for their own actions. Uh, they want to point the finger at other people. In reality, democracies don't work unless people are responsible and get their butts out and vote. Countries don't work unless people do their part. And we have this um, idea that I have to do only what I'm either paid for, or required. And I think responsibility goes so much deeper than that. And so, you know, I, I try to point that same finger at myself, but I think we as societies really need to do that to a greater degree. More, more great advice. We're going to wrap things up there. General Stanley, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Wishing you the absolute best with everything you do in the future. And I will hopefully see you in London sometime soon. Thank you so much. 
Importantly for me, the Accelerating Excellence podcast is not just about inspiration. It's about practicality for you, the listener. And that's why at the end of each interview, we'll be transitioning the focus to put in the actual insights and practical techniques from the interview so you can start stacking the odds of success in your favor. As we go through this, you're going to very quickly realize that excellence is not about doing extraordinary things. It's about doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. There are going to be fundamental themes that connect our outliers and experts' successes and ultimately will underpin your success too. So General Stanley, what a conversation. So many things to take away. The first thing that resonated with me were his remarks around this image we have of what excellence looks like and how we put people on pedestals based on superficial observations. It's so, so easy to overestimate others and to underestimate ourselves. I think this stems from what I refer to as the movie version of success, uh, whether it's DiCaprio collecting his Oscars, Serena winning a 23rd Grand Slam, or Elon launching his 27-engine Falcon Heavy rocket into space, strapped with a cherry red Tesla Roadster. This is kind of how we see elite performance. The actor receiving their Oscar, the athlete on the podium, or the CEO at the product launch. Not many of us grow up in or around excellence or truly elite performance. We only see excellence when the experts finished. And this is a fraction of what excellence really entails. Like an iceberg, the part of excellence that's visible is smaller and less significant. And it's the bits we can't see, the bits beneath the surface that make the difference. And that's the key problem. It makes us susceptible to two things. And General McChrystal touched on this. One is that we kind of default that that's uh, all talent, genetics, and we reluctantly accept our mediocrity. This is just where we sit. Or due to the fact we've created this sort of them and us gap, we can't see a clear path to the top. And because of this, some of us don't even bother to try. The fact is, it takes one breakthrough for you to perceive the possibility of the next. And this means that so many of us stay blind to the enormous potential that uh, basically remains dormant within us. When your perceptions of potential are low, the quality and quantity of the action you take is proportionately low. And therefore, the quality of the results you produce is also low. And guess what? This reinforces that initial belief of low potential. The opposite is true when we have high perceptions of potential. We engage in high quality, high quantity action, and this inevitably impacts the quality of the results we produce. Guess what now? This reinforces or even expands our perceptions of potential. And this is in effect how we grow confidence. One of the first things I look at with any individual or team I'm working with is getting a firm understanding of their perceptions of potential for this exact reason. And you'll often find very clear links between their perceptions of potential and their level of achievement. This is a key subject we're going to explore through season one of this podcast. And in terms of the iceberg analogy, that is fundamentally what this podcast is about, revealing the principles beneath the surface of the iceberg, the proven principles that maximize your potential to excel. We have to work smarter, not harder, if we really want to excel. The first one for me, um, just an absolute fundamental, walk the walk. You have to be what you want people to be. 
the message here is that if you want everyone else to bring the intensity, enthusiasm, dedication, and commitment, guess what? You go first. You don't just push people towards excellence. You must actively demonstrate the behaviors that will take you all there as a collective. You need to lead by example, bringing the energy, following through on what you say, following the rules you set, giving trust and listening. Number two, make people think for themselves. I'm not going to decide. That's your job. This is such a crucial talent development principle. Advanced skills cannot be taught. They must be discovered. You need to swap recite, repeat, regurgitate for think, do, and produce. When you're fed the answers, there are fewer breakthrough moments that cement the learning in your brain. Now, your coach can explain it to you, but they can't understand it for you. When you have to summon your own solutions, the practice literally changes you. And this moves us from creating one-dimensional robots who can't think for themselves to generating three-dimensional problem solvers who can perceive, read between the lines, consider options, make decisions, and execute with slick precision. Number three, you've got to take risk. One of the biggest risks any individual or organization can take is not taking any risk. As the old saying goes, a uh, ship is safe in a harbor, but that's not what ships are for. There's no pursuit of excellence that doesn't involve the risk of crippling hurt. Risk is not reckless. It's a calculated dance, and it's where some of your most exhilarating breakthrough moments will be born from. It's one of the most valuable forms of leverage there is outside of time and money. The more risk you can handle and the better you can calculate risk, the steeper your development trajectory will be. It activates your psychological firepower and expands your potential. Like most things, taking risk is a skill. Obviously, you should inoculate against the risk through progressive exposure to it in training or through your development pathway. Broadly speaking, you want to be spending as much time as possible in what we call the adaptive zone. In the adaptive zone, you should be sat upright, mouth wide open, hands clasped, raising your eyebrows, squinting your eyes. Your eyes should literally be burning holes through anything placed in front of them. You should feel your heart pound, your mind churn as you're forced to summon solutions. If you're feeling too comfortable, you're going through the motions, then you're not getting better and you need to dial up the risk somehow. It's only when you increase the demands placed upon you beyond your current abilities, risking failure, that you create a performance gap. And it's the exposure to this gap that sparks your brain and body to adapt to that higher level. I'm a founding partner of a derivatives trading house. And one of the ways we align with this principle is with our aspiring traders. Very often, they're going to struggle with the idea of risk-taking in the form of making large bets with capital at risk. What do we do? We set a minimum bet size. There's a point in time where we have to make it compulsory to place a trade of a certain size. And it goes something like this. You have three hours to get long or short $500,000 or you're out of the program. Now, this constraint forces the trader to reconcile what's holding them back and find a way to overcome that obstacle. Some have to confront the fear. Some, the fact they weren't prepared enough, they need to go and get prepared. Some have to divest some of the comfort they're unconsciously seeking. And of course, others have to existentially reflect on whether the risk-taking involved with becoming an elite trader is 
for them at all. General Stanley wrote an entire book on risk. It, he perceives it to be that important, and it really is. And I really recommend reading that book. It's absolutely fantastic. Lesson four for me, people that change the world, they work really, really hard. Now, that's what General Stanley said in this uh, interview. The perception that commitment to elite performance limits other aspects of your life is nonsense. When the work is enjoyable and taking you where you want to go, there is no sacrifice. It can actually feel really, really liberating to enjoy the here and now and know that it's driving you forward. Training demands and commitments that might appear superhuman to others can feel perfectly balanced and well-adjusted to you and I. It's entirely possible for you to be happy with a lifestyle that others might perceive as unconventional or extreme. Lesson five, listen. And I'm going to quote General Stanley again here. It took me a long time in my career to say, shut up and listen, because two things happen. First, you get great guidance. And two, you change the relationship. The relationship is one of respect because you're showing them you respect them because you value what they tell you. One of the most basic of all human needs is the need to understand and the need to be understood. When we are listened to, the exchange of information and emotion in that moment generates cohesion, trust, respect, and growth. It requires a lot of patience, putting egos aside and some courage, but the returns are enormous. And if you truly can't tolerate listening to someone, it's almost a perfect acid test that that someone or potentially you is in the wrong team and one of you needs to be removed from it for that team to be able to flourish. Lesson six, make it competitive, win. Iron sharpens iron. Your development accelerates in competitive, enthusiastic, high effort environments where learning and winning are the aim. Those who think this is unrealistically idealistic need to think again. In elite performance environments, this is the norm. The more advanced the skills and the desire to win of your peers, the more advanced yours will become. You really want to embed yourself in a supportive, collaborative, challenging, but competitive environment if your aim is to optimize your development. Lesson seven, the barometer for success is the team. General Stanley's focus was on being a great leader. And initially, this was all about him. The barometer was, can he stand in front of the mirror, look, him, look at himself in the eye and say whether or not he was the leader he aspired to be or not? Later in his career, he had that breakthrough moment that being a great leader wasn't about him. Now, the barometer for his leadership abilities was holding that mirror up to the unit and deciding whether they're a good organization or not. Lesson eight. Believe in what you're doing. This is absolutely crucial to get right. And it's such an important message. Nobody hates doing anything worse than things that just seem pointless. Uh, that's what General Stanley shared with us. And then he went on to share that if you want to see a military unit fall to pieces, give it nothing to do. The deeper burnout occurs when people start to lose a belief in what they're doing. And I could not agree more. In the counter-terrorist fight that General Stanley led, which lasted over a decade, operators were conducting extremely violent raids with lots of killing on both sides, night after night. When asked by congressional delegates, how long can the guys keep this up? General Stanley's response was the following. Until they think you're not serious, 
until they think that we're not going to prosecute operations as you've described. If they think they're doing something that has no end or no conviction by the government, they won't be able to continue. They exist because they believe that you're serious. Then General Stanley shares the spear analogy, which I think is really profound and ignored by way too many owners, leaders, and management teams. And it goes like this. They're the tip of the spear, but the power of the spear comes from the shaft. It comes in the weight that the shaft gives when it's thrown or pushed. All leadership teams need to seriously reflect on this. What are you asking from those you lead and serve? The commitment the team brings will be, to a large extent, proportionate to your belief in the mission you're all on. How serious do they think you are about winning, achieving, and solving the problem the team exists to solve? And how does that potentially link to the behaviors you see in that team day in, day out? Lesson nine, dealing with adversity. Now, upon sharing his resignation uh, to President Obama, General Stanley gave some great advice on dealing with adversity. I think it's just invaluable. First up was your past does not equal your future. You might have been an absolute dirtbag that day, and you may have done something horrific. That doesn't mean you have to do that tomorrow. That there's such a thing as redemption. The world moves on. Realizing that the world doesn't revolve around you can act like a release valve and that people will largely judge you on what you do in the more recent past. And you'll suddenly realize it's going to be okay. In psychology, we call this impact bias. The beast we fear is generally never nearly as terrifying as we initially thought. The funny thing about any type of failure is it's not until we start to experience it and fail that we realize it's not actually that bad. Your evolutionary programming designed to keep you alive tends to overestimate how bad things are. Consequently, you fear negative events more than you probably should. I'm not saying that failing doesn't hurt. It does. There's nothing fun about failure, nor am I saying that we should aim to fail. That would be idiotic. The message is that it's way less painful than you think. And more importantly, you are built to compete, to take on challenges and deal with the inevitable hits that come with failure. You're the product of millions of years of evolution and you have this inbuilt ability to recover from trauma. It's hardwired into your DNA. In the same way, your physical immunity depends on exposure to germs, viruses and bacteria. This also happens on a psychological level. When you put in the effort, you take a risk and you fail, you also start to build immunity to the fear of failure. Your psychological immune system kicks in. Taking on a challenge and exposing yourself to fear is how you strengthen your psychological immune system and how you actually forge confidence. You have to learn to fail and trust in your psychological immune system to get over it. Strengthening your psychological immune system doesn't mean you never get sick, but it means you get sick way less and recover quicker. General Stanley, I want to say an enormous thank you. You've been such an inspiring figure to me throughout my career. I wish you the absolute best, sir, and hopefully see you in London soon. I want to take a moment to say thank you to one of our sponsors, Ander Performance. Ander bring best-in-class human performance technology products and services to the military and sports communities. You'll find their link in the description below. Go check them out. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. 
I love this topic of human performance and excellence, and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network, and learnings with you. Now, go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now, go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do. The book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important for the aspiring athlete, executive or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day 
to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.